Welcome to Preaching and Preachers, a weekly podcast devoted to those who preach and to the task of preaching itself. I'm your host, Jared Bumpers, Assistant Professor of Preaching and Evangelism here at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Today, I want to welcome Dr. Jonathan Pennington to the podcast. Jonathan is Professor of New Testament Interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. He's written several books, including The Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, Reading the Gospels Wisely, and Heaven and Earth in the Gospel of Matthew. He also serves on the preaching staff at Sojourn East Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Dr. Pennington, welcome to Preaching and Preachers. Hey, it's so great to be here. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And before we jump into our conversation today, can you give us an update on your, your family and your ministry right now? Sure. So uh, as you said there, yeah, I'm a professor of New Testament, uh, which is a, a joy. But all along, and especially in the last few years, I've also served in various pastoral roles. And I was a pastor before I was a professor, you know, 30 years ago. But in the last few years, I've really put a lot more of my life energy into our local church here. Sojourn East is what it's called. It's one of the family of churches here in town. And there I do a bunch of stuff. We have an intentional dual pulpit. So I preach about a third of the time and the lead pastor preaches about two thirds of the time. And that's really intentional to have a couple of different complementary voices in the pulpit. And then I also lead the men's ministry and teach Bible studies and mentor a lot of people in the church and do some counseling, even another. So I do a lot in the church now and, and also uh, teach. And in my mind, those are just two sides of one joyful, joyful thing in my life. Man, praise the Lord. That's great. I'm in a similar situation here. I work full time for the school, teach preaching, but I also uh, preach a fourth to two thirds of the time at, at a local church here in Kansas City Fellowship, KC. And so, uh, yeah, we, we yeah. love love guys who are involved in the academy and serving in a local church. And so, yeah, it's an honor to have you join us. And we talk about preaching. You're somebody who's preaching regularly right now. And then you've written a book on preaching titled Small Preaching. The subtitle is 25 Little Things You Can Do to Become a Better Preacher. And so I'm really Really excited about the podcast topic today and think guys that are not just aspiring to preach, but that are currently preaching can benefit mm-hmm. from this book. And so I'm going to hold out on some of the advice or tips or suggestions that you give so that they'll buy the book. But I do want to ask some questions <laughs> about some things that you've mentioned here. Sure. So you break the book up into three categories. You have a section on just the person of the preacher. And so how does a preacher respond to criticism, positive feedback, negative feedback? You've got a section on preparing sermons, so the preparation of sermons. And then you have a section at the end on on actually preaching. And so I want to kind of take those three categories separately and talk about the person first. And one of the things you talk about in the book is how to respond to feedback from a sermon, and and you have a chapter on positive feedback and a chapter on negative feedback. And so would love for you to just talk to our listeners a little bit about the importance of receiving feedback and then some suggestions for handling positive feedback and negative feedback. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, those essays meant a lot to me, and and a lot of people have asked me about them because I don't think they're things we actually talk about very much. Mm -hmm. And, And I would say generally, you know, I'm not a homiletics professor, even though I've been preaching off and on a lot for, you know, 30 years or so. But, you know, I wrote a book on preaching as a New Testament guy and as a pastor, recognizing that I'm kind of coming at these things from the side rather than, you know, as one who teaches preaching all the time. And so I hope that gives some kind of fresh perspective as well. And again, this is, I think, one of those topics where I haven't seen many people talk about what do you do when somebody you know, criticizes you, how do you handle that? And maybe even, 
more difficult in some ways. What do you do when somebody says that, you know, you're standing at the door afterwards, great sermon pastor or whatever, or something, what, what do you do with that? And so the point of those essays is, again, to really think carefully about ways of wisdom, little small steps you can take, little things to say in response to either of those situations, always paying attention to what's going on inside of our hearts. You know, that's important. But I give some practical tips on what to do when criticism comes our way, which is inevitable, right? Mm. And how to handle it with wisdom. And then again, especially probably even less commonly talked about, what do you do when someone gives you a compliment, not just about preaching, but about anything pastoral. And I've seen over the years that I think we've kind of lost a good sense of how to handle a compliment. And what we often do out of a sincerity, I think, of, you know, wanting to make sure God is honored in our lives, we often say, oh, no, 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 oh, no, no, it's nothing in me, nothing in me, whatever. But what I've come to see in just, you know, studying philosophy and theology and the Sermon on the Mount and just thinking about the human soul is that, you know, it's, it's actually good and appropriate for people to give thanks to other people and to honor people for faithfulness and good work. And it's really important that we actually complete the circle of that and honor the giving of thanks by receiving the thanks mm. rather than blowing it off. You know, yeah. it's, it's like we're actually kind of shunning the economy that God has set up in the world that people who do good and people who are worthy of honor should hear that and should be honored for that, you know? And so, of course, there's always a danger of pride. There's always the danger of, you know, self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement. But if we can keep those, you know, aware that we don't want to go down those roads, we don't have to go to the opposite extreme and act like there's no way to receive praise or receive thanks. And and so I think it's as practical as when someone says, hey, you know, great sermon. I really love that. You know, depending on how much time you have with them, you might say something as short as, thank you. That really means a lot to me. Uh, you know, I need encouragement just like anybody else. And I'm really thankful to hear the Lord spoke to you today. You know, something like that really honors in a sincere and authentic way, really honors the giving of the thanks. If you have more time with someone, you might even say, Hey, help me understand what was like really, what was helpful to you so that I can grow and make sure I'm giving my energy to saying things that are helpful for people's spiritual growth. So that's just one of the little ideas of ways to make little steps, small steps, towards improving in that way, I think. Yeah, I think listeners will resonate with what you're saying there. And what you just did demonstrates humility. So we think the humility is, oh, it wasn't me, it was the Lord. But you, you demonstrated humility saying, I need encouragement just like anybody else does. Or how can I learn? What did I do well? And how can I learn from that so that I can mm-hmm. continue growing as a preacher? And those are also signs of humility. And so, yeah, we, what you don't want to do is make it awkward for the person who says, good job. Right. And then, no, it wasn't a good job. Or it was all the Lord. I had nothing to do with it. And it, you can get right, into right. an awkward situation there. And so, yeah, I, I think yeah, I yeah. think that particular section was helpful. And I remember in the book, that's one of the suggestions you actually wrote out was, man, yeah, that, that was encouraging. And I need encouragement just like anybody else, which humanizes the preacher. And so, yeah, yeah. I think that's great. It just uh, happened yesterday. I, I preached, so we had two services in my church, and I always joke that, you know, I'm— I'm a 10% better preacher in the second service than in the first, <laughs> for sure. Because even though I manuscript my sermons, so I know almost, I'm almost going to say exactly the same thing. I always feel a little looser and a little, you know, a little bit more clarity in my own mind of what to emphasize in the second service. So after that first service, you know, words of encouragement are particularly helpful to me. And, and yesterday it happened, someone I know, a couple that I've mentored, they came up to me and she just said some really specific, encouraging things. And they really increased my gratitude and, and 
confidence as I went into the second service, you know, to just say, okay, I didn't know if this was landing, but here's at least one person that had a really specific way in which the Lord spoke to them. And that just kind of put a little bit more lift in my spirits as I went into the second service. So it really does matter. And praise the Lord. That's encouraging to hear. You also have a chapter here on the distinction between preaching and teaching. And you talk about uh, conversations you have with young guys who are trying to do too much in their preaching. And so I'd love to hear you just kind of talk about the distinction between preaching and teaching. When can a preacher discern when they're doing too much in a sermon and, and something they're trying to cover may be better served in a different context or setting? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, and of course, preaching and teaching for the Christian, and especially when we're talking about the Bible, there's going to be overlap. You know, there's a Venn diagram overlap between them. They're not absolutely distinct, but mm-hmm. I do think it's important that we have in our minds that a sermon is not a lecture. In fact, I, I just saw a really great little essay. I can't remember where it was, but it was talking about like things that a sermon is not basically. Mm-hmm. And it was like a pep rally, a TED talk, a guilt trip, and there's a fourth one as well. And I thought, oh, that's really good. And and the temptation, I think a lot of times, especially for those of us who have a very high view of scripture and really want to make sure that we're teaching scripture and what we're saying is based on scripture, that we can really fall into like a, a lecture mode. Oh, a, a doctoral dissertation. That would be the other thing. A, a good sermon is not. And it's really easy for some of us who really care about doctrine and really care about the Bible to turn the sermon into a what I call inflicted with subpoint itis, inflammation of the subpoints. <laughs> I don't know if I said that in the book, but that's one of my favorite sayings, you know, inflammation of the subpoints, where you've got all these sort of detailed things, no stone unturned, you know, and the, and the rabbit trail becomes a rabbit hole, as you might say, and you carry your congregation down into the hole with you that, from which they never escape, you know. So instead of, I, I think a really helpful way to say is, you know, a sermon is a different thing. It's going to include instruction for sure. But it's an invitation to see God and see ourselves more clearly with a heavy emphasis on how we can respond. And that response doesn't always mean actions. It may be adjustments of our heart and adjustments of posture, adjustments of our sensibility. Sometimes it's actions, depending on the text. But I think a a lot of emphasis on how do we see God more clearly in this text and how do we understand ourselves and, and our world more clearly and then how is God inviting us to respond to that? And that's, again, going to include teaching and instruction, but that's not the same thing as what I do in the classroom. And I think the biggest thing is what you pointed out. I think generally we need to say a lot less. There, I think there needs to be fewer points, less content in the, in the sense of like fewer comprehensive points and more driving for the heart and driving application. And I don't think anybody would ever accuse my preaching of not having like substantive points, but I hope they would say that it really was those points were not too many and that they were driving towards how to respond to the Lord in this situation. And so that's probably the biggest thing I think we can all grow on if we care about doctrine in the Bible is probably saying less. (laughs) And that is saying less different things and focusing on doing the hard work of, of helping people see how this text actually applies to their real lives. Yeah, I think I've heard your, your colleague there at Southern Herschel, York, in, in response to the question, how many points should a sermon have? His response is at least one. And so that, that <laughs> that's generally helpful advice, uh, depending on, on yeah, obviously the text yeah. and, you know, what, what you're dealing with, your, your points will vary. But but again, I think conciseness and clarity in preaching is always a goal. Totally. And so, yeah, I think the, the emphasis on speaking clearly, concisely, sometimes to quote uh, Ranch Wilder from Angels in the Outfield, less is more. And so, 
Yeah, yeah I, I, I appreciated I so. that conversation as well. And so, again, if, if you're listening, I would encourage you to pick up the book. He does have a Venn diagram where he talks about the content overlapping. Biblical and theological content is similar in preaching and teaching, but kind of the goal or purpose uh, in preaching and teaching is distinct. So, again, want, want to recommend that book. One of the things you talked about in the book, and then I'll move on to the preparation of sermons, but but I don't want to skip by this because I was fascinated by the illustration. You talk about encaustic preaching, mm. and so I would mm. love for you to give our listeners kind of the background of that metaphor. So where does that idea come from, and then how did you apply that to preaching? Yeah, yeah, and credit where credit's due. I think I, there's an endnote that says this. This came out of a conversation with a colleague of mine who also goes to my church, uh, Dr. Matthew Westerholm, who's just absolutely brilliant and and super clever and super creative. And we were talking about that. So that's where the idea came from. But we were talking about it because I had just seen a bunch of encaustic paintings in New Mexico, a trip that my wife and I were on to Santa Fe. But encaustic painting actually goes way back into at least, I think, third millennium BC. We even have some of these left from Egypt and others, because it's a kind of painting where they would put dyes into various wax and then drip. The painting was created by dripping layers of colored wax on top of, uh, usually onto a piece of wood. And so they end up lasting literally thousands of years longer than any other kind of painting because the dye is sealed into the wax. And so it doesn't fade, you know, very much. And so anyways, this idea of encaustic is a very different way to think about painting. And then the analogy for preaching is that, you know, to think of every sermon as just one more drip of hot colored wax that is only going to make a picture over the long haul. That is that no sermon is the entirety of your ministry. No sermon is going to do all the work of formation or all the things that you need to say. In fact, don't try to do that in every sermon, Mm -hmm. but to kind of take a long game view and take an encaustic view towards it, Uh, not caustic in the sense of like a negative, you know, being acidic, but like recognizing that each sermon is just, it's going to do its little bit of work and play the long game. And this also speaks to the importance of longevity in a place that you're there, you're not only preaching for a long time in one place, but you're also deeply involved in other aspects of people's lives. You know, I, I don't really respect or have much understanding of how someone could only be a preacher. Hmm. Sorry if I'm stepping on any toes here, but only be no. a preacher and not deeply involved in people's lives. I just don't understand that. I don't care how big the church is. I mean, granted, I know things you can't have access to everybody once a church gets so big, completely recognize that. But I don't think a preacher should ever be completely or even primarily cut a fart from dealing with people's lives, you know, and loving them. And so I just think that in caustic preaching, again, the idea is that we are playing the long game and investing ourselves in people through every sermon and not putting too much weight on any particular sermon to do all the work. That's the idea. I hope that's what you got out of that essay. I think that's what I said there. Yeah, no, that's, that's <laughs> great. Yeah. Exactly what I said, right? okay. yeah, that's exactly what I was looking for. The, the idea that you don't have to say everything in one sermon, you want to be faithful to the text, but Sometimes there's a pressure to say everything in that sermon, to get everything just right. And so that's a helpful mm-hmm. reminder that it is, it's ministry and preaching over the long haul. And I think you're spot on with, with your connection between pastoring and preaching. Those two things are are connected. And the best preaching comes from guys who are rooted in their community, have built relationships with their people, and are doing not just biblical preaching, yeah. but pastoral preaching. And so yeah. I, th- I think that's a helpful yeah. word and, and appreciate it and couldn't agree more. 
So the second section of your book, you talk about preparing uh, sermons, and you argue for sermon manuscripts. And so some guys in the field of homiletics are, are pro-sermon manuscripts. Others are not. I make my students in my classes write a manuscript for their sermons. And so I read your chapter and uh, give it a hearty affirmation, but would love to hear you talk about uh, the importance of writing sermon manuscripts. And maybe even you, you preached this past weekend, you said, love to hear just your own thoughts on your own process of writing a sermon manuscript, what that looks like, yeah. how long it takes, how many words. Just give us a little insight into yeah. your process. <laughs> oh, man. Th- this is one where I still feel so much uncertainty. Uh, I know how I do it and how I like to do it, but I also recognize there's a lot of people who are very, very good preachers and very good homiletics teachers, professors who would say the opposite. So I'm really respectful of that and, and don't at all want to think this is a one-size-fits-all. But the reason I have found manuscripting a sermon to be so great Two quick ideas, one of which is way than the other. The first is, I think writing is how you figure out what you think. Mm-hmm. And that's the advantage of forcing yourself to think through what you're going to say. For me, I'm a professional talker. You know, I talk all the time. I'm very extroverted. I love the classroom. I love the pulpit. I love conversations with people. And so I not only figure out what I think by writing it out, I also figure it out by talking it out. But I don't want to do too much of that in the pulpit is the point, <laughs> the, the figuring yes. out. You know what I mean? Like, yes. I don't want to regret or not be the most helpful. So I find that for a sermon, it's really helpful for me to actually force myself to write the whole thing out because it really does clarify my thinking. And it also helps me see holes in what I'm saying, maybe holes logically, but especially holes in terms of really going for the heart. And, and being concrete and not just abstract. Mm-hmm. In other words, the less time I spend on a text, the more vague and abstract I'm going to be. And the more time I sit with it and ask really specific questions, the more concrete I'm going to be with what it's saying and, and what we're supposed to do about it. And so the forced manuscript makes me do that. Now, that's not the same thing as the question of what you should preach from. Right. I also preach from a manuscript, but I recognize that some people might have a position where they'd say, write it out, but then don't preach from it, you know, turn it into other points. And I completely respect that. I'm still too scared to do it yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, for some reason. And, and here's the other complexity of this whole thing is that, like I said, I'm a professional talker. I mean, I teach a ton, both in the classroom and I travel all over the country and teach a lot of weekends in theological institutes and in church seminars on stuff I know well, the Gospels and the Sermon on the Mount and Matthew and John, all these kind of things. And the reality is, honestly, in all those other environments, I hardly look at any notes at all. Like I do it almost all off, off the top of my head, but it's off the top of my head because I'm like, I do this stuff so often. This is stuff I've done tons of academic work on, tons of teaching work on. But when it comes to the pulpit, even if I know a text well, I, I'm still really hesitant to do that. I just, I don't trust myself to not get a little crazy sometimes because mm-hmm. in the classroom, I do get a little crazy sometimes. <laughs> and I, and, and, but I, I've been trying hard to actually kind of marry those two worlds to be a, even more loose in the pulpit, yet still, you know, extremely careful. Honestly, I don't think anybody watching me preach would even know that I'm using the manuscript. So it's, I don't think there's any sense of like, wow, he's reading something. I think people would be totally shocked if they knew I was using a manuscript. But 
I know that I am not as free in the pulpit as I am in the, in the classroom or even the church seminar. And I would like to get a little better about that. And so that's why I'm just confessing that I'm kind of still in the process of this, but for all those reasons that I said, I think it's really important to have a manuscript. Oh, I didn't give you the second one. The second reason what's great about manuscripting is that you can go back a year, five years, two years, 10 years. You may hate what you wrote, especially if you wrote it 10 years ago, but nonetheless, I've been, I've often pulled up certain manuscripts like, I didn't even know I preached that passage. You know, like I'm coming up to preach something else. I'm like, oh, I actually have a sermon on this. Or, or maybe there's something I can use from it and kind of adjust it and modify it to another sermon. And in those cases, I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I wrote this out and didn't just like read all the commentaries, have it fresh in my mind, and then say it. And then it would just be lost in the ether forever. But the fact that I took the time to actually write it all out, it like blesses my future self as well. So that's the kind of practical reason why I found it's really helpful. What you described there is very similar to what I do. I, I manuscript my sermons, usually carry the manuscript with me and try not to use it or rely on it. For me, it's kind of a broad guide to know where I'm going and then a safety net in case I get rattled or something yep, happens that totally, disrupts the totally, service. Totally. I've got my notes there, but but try not to rely on it. But you had two separate questions. Even if you don't preach from the manuscript, for the reasons you've said, you have a, a record of that sermon, it, it forces you to think through exactly what you want to say and how you want to say yeah. it. It yeah. allows you, if you, you pay attention to word count, you can trace oh, that yeah, or track totally. that and know how long your sermon is going to be. So. I know exactly how my, long my sermons are going to be. Yeah. yeah. So I, I do 12 and a half point font and I know when I'm hitting page nine, I need to be done. Mm. Basically, if I hit page 10, it's going to be too long. So generally... Now, sometimes if I have bullet points in there or if I end up expanding a little bit on something, which I don't a lot, I know that a nine page sermon for me at 12 and a half point font, which is usually around 4,000 words, is going to be about 36 minutes. I mean, I've got it pretty dialed in. And so uh, that's helpful for me to know if I have like a shorter thing, like a you know, good Friday homily that needs to be 20 minutes. I know, okay, that means to be more like four pages yeah. or if I'm getting too long, because you almost always I'm cutting down. So I usually end up writing like a 5,000 word sermon and then I keep whittling away and until I get it more to like in the 3,800 to 4,000 words is about what works for me. But it's going to vary by person according to how quickly you speak and other things like that. So, Well, that's a perfect segue into the next question I have written down, which is your chapter on kill your darlings. And you're talking about editing, paring down <laughs> a sermon. We've already talked about brevity a little bit, but just, just spend a minute or two talking about the importance of editing and, and killing your darlings. Yes, uh, it's hurt. <laughs> and that phrase comes uh, from a famous book on writing. But yeah, you know, you have these great ideas and you have these great words. But again, most of what you think and your notes needs to not appear in the sermon. And I may have said this in the book or the essay or not, I can't remember, but I always say to students, you know, if you go into the pulpit with 38 points, people go home with guess how many? Zero. <laughs> you know, if you, if there's just, is where the less is more, the less, not less depth, but less breadth, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. in terms of like, say some important things, but dig deep, help people dig deep and not just be surface readers, help people think about applications. So, yeah, I think, you know, you do, that's what I'm usually cutting, even on Sunday morning, to be honest with you, early, like the 530 a.m., the final edit through, I'm usually cutting just too many words, you know, just too many ideas. I'll, I'll look through it and realize, you know, this is interesting. I care about this idea, but it's really not in line with 
the whole point of the sermon or it's kind of a side note or it takes it emotionally a different place. And so that's, yeah, that's hard because those are great, <laughs> great things. Sometimes they might have some great illustration. Um, yeah, it's hard, but it is an important thing. It's it's really part of the, the labor and the sacrifice. It's the gift of what it's the gift that the preacher is giving to the congregation that they'll never see. Yeah. In other words, all the work you do to cut down and to refine and to sharpen and to clarify and to go deep and to go from the abstract to the concrete to come down the ladder of abstraction, as it's called in writing, all that work nobody's ever going to see because it's way easier to write a long, wordy, vague sermon. But if you do that work, that is the greatest gift you can give your people because you're actually modeling a, a kind of a deeper reading of, of scripture, I think. When I was years ago working on my PhD in a, in a seminar, I had a professor say that the quality of a paper is determined by the amount of information or content that doesn't make it into the paper. And so during presentations, <laughs> yeah. one of the questions he would ask is, what did you learn that's not in this paper? What what's significant or important <laughs> that others would be interested by that's relevant to the field, but it's not in this particular paper. And it was always fascinating to watch other students sometimes try to answer that question because some of them, that, that, that everything they knew was jammed in that paper and <laughs> the quality of the paper is based on what doesn't make it. And I think the same could be true listening to you, you talk here about sermons. The same could be true about a sermon. The quality of the sermon is based on what doesn't make it into the sermon just because you're selective on what you share with your people. Yeah, you may recall one of the essays in there I call iceberg preaching, and mm -hmm. that's very much the point. That yes. yeah, that a great iceberg, which kind of sounds weird to call a great iceberg because <laughs> we mostly think of them in negative terms, you know, yep. sinking things. But but a great iceberg actually, the amount that you see above the waterline is a lot less than what's below the waterline. Like what what gives a a great iceberg ballast and significance and not just being an ice flow is that it's got this massive under the water unseen thing. And that's the kind of gravitas. That's the the depth of the work that preachers need to do to make sure that they're, they know their stuff and that they're providing the best of what they understand. They're not just, yeah, just unloading all the data that they got from reading 10 commentaries, yep. you know, so which is tempting, especially when you're younger, I get it. You know, mm -hmm. when you're first starting, you're like, what am I going to say for 35 minutes or something? And I'm like, how can I only speak for 35 minutes? You know, but, but that, so that is part of the, part of the process that, uh, it, yeah, it's very important. That's so good. In your last section, you talk about preaching. And for the sake of time, I'm going to just ask you one question from this section. But you have a chapter on introductions, the first minute of the sermon. You have a chapter on the conclusions, the last minute of the sermon. Those are both helpful yeah. chapters. So again, would commend those to our readers. Good. But the last question I'm going to ask you deals with uh, your chapter on stealing as subcreating. So you have a chapter yeah, on yeah. stealing, borrowing information from others. And, uh, you know, your, your sentence, I wrote it down here, happy and wise leaders learn from others. That, that was your, your summary, maybe less provocative than stealing. But the idea is preachers learn from others. And so we'd love to hear you speak to that a little bit. How can preachers learn from others? What are some sources they should consider as they're preparing sermons and growing as preachers? Yeah, that's great. So that the whole essay was inspired by the great little book by Austin Cleon called Steal Like an Artist, which is a great little, you know, sit down and read in 20 minutes, kind of 15 minutes book that and his newsletter is great to get and everything. But it's basically the idea that first, there's nothing new under the sun. And secondly, all of our creating is really just a reshaping of stuff that already exists. You know, we don't create ex nihilo and that includes us preachers. Now, mm -hmm. the obvious thing that's not saying is plagiarize, you know, yes. it's not saying just kind of change your headings and say, that obviously not, I'm never even 
been tempted by that and but i know that does happen probably a lot but but so it's obviously not about plagiarizing but it's actually starting with the humility to recognize yeah nothing is new under the sun and i not only can't reinvent the wheel i shouldn't you know and so just to sort of start with that posture of like what can i learn from others and then articulate that in my voice to this people at this place at this time you know, like approaching that way of thinking about a sermon rather than I have to come up with something totally novel and original and whatever. It's just to recognize, yeah, I'm leaning, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants before me and I'm listening to brothers who are next to me and I'm looking forward to the future generations that are trying to figure out how this applies in their lives even differently than in my age, you know, my current chronological age even. So I think it's just to start with that humility of gathering I don't know if I say it in that essay, but I always talk about, you know, gathering lumber from any forest you can, you know, and you always have to discern, is this good lumber or not? Fair enough. But I live my life with a very open head and open heart and open mind and open hands to just read widely and just always have my antenna tuned to how can this help me understand the world? How can this person help me understand the world? Even if it's not a Christian, even, you know, what, what insights this expert might have on this or whatever. So I'm gathering lumber from wherever I can gladly, and then running it through this crucial filter of Holy scripture and who God is. And, and then trying to articulate that in a creative and winsome way to people. So is that what you're going to ask me about? Or do you want to nope. follow up question on that? Or? That's, that's perfect. That's exactly what I was asking. And I think that's a good posture to have for preachers and, and for learners in general, to have your antenna up, to learn and to read widely, to learn from a, a broad swath of people. So that's such helpful advice. Well, Dr. Penning, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, it's been a joy. Thank you so much. And listeners, thank you again for joining us on Preaching and Preachers. Until next time, I'm your host, Jared Bumpers, and I look forward to connecting with you again. Thank you for being with us today and for listening to Preaching and Preachers. For more information, go to my website, jasonkallen.com. That's jasonkallen.com.